Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No America. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaign. Oh, wait. Unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. It's been a terrible week for the country with the rioting and insurrection going on in many of our nation's cities. I'll be talking about that, obviously. We also had a major court hearing this week with Hillary Clinton's lawyers and the United States government's lawyers on whether or not she will be testifying to Judicial Watch as a lower court is ordered. I'll give you the rundown on that. And plus, it was a really busy week. I was testifying on the Hill, well, not on the Hill because it was a virtual testimony, about clean elections. And uh, it was stacked with leftists. And so it was a good hearing. And I'll talk to you about that. Uh, and at the same time, I was testifying. Who was testifying? Rod Rosenstein over in the Senate. So I'll give you the rundown as to what Mr. Rosenstein admitted to or didn't admit to and what he was asked and what he should have been asked by senators who were finally getting around to investigating the worst corruption scandal in American history in a more seemingly serious way. So we'll talk about whether it's even serious enough given the current crisis. Uh, so first up is the insurrection by the violent left targeting the United States of America. That's what's going on right now. We had major rioting going on in major cities. Uh, New York City has been under siege, uh, practically speaking, all week. Uh, the Washington, in Washington, D.C. here, our city had been under siege until the president intervened uh, with law enforcement and military support uh, to put the rioters in check. Uh, much of the violence is associated with the Antifa left-wing movement. And, of course, you have hangers-on who are just there to loot because that's what criminals do. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with peaceably assembling to make your grievances known. That's a God-given right enshrined in the Constitution. But you don't have a right to commit insurrection. You don't have a right to kill people. You don't have a right to loot. You don't have a right to burn. You don't have a right to commit violent acts. You don't have a right to attack buildings and attack government. You don't have a right to assault the White House complex. And certainly, when you're doing that in coordination in an attempt, evidently, to overthrow the government, it's insurrection. So uh, you've had governors, and are actually mostly big city mayors who have especially in New York City, refused to uh, assert the rule of law. It's not even asserting the rule of law. It's just having the government do its core duty, which is to protect the lives of citizens. It wasn't happening in New York City. And for a time, it wasn't happening in Washington, D.C. I'm sure you've seen all the video of what was going on outside the White House with the assaults in Lafayette Park, the burning of St. John's, which is... Uh, uh, a church that is called the Church of Presidents. It's a, it's a wonderful old church across the street from the White House. You have the mayor here in D.C. Uh, resisting uh, law enforcement efforts, attacking the president for insisting on the rule of law in the nation's capital. It's a terrible situation, and the president tweeted out that he's going to designate Antifa as, as a terrorist organization. Well, certainly it is an organization and it is terrorist. And for years it's been engaging in acts of terrorism, acts of sedition, seditious conspiracy. And as I tweeted out the other day, they've been doing it for years, but the FBI and the Justice Department were too busy engaging in their own seditious conspiracy against the president. And so it's good to see Attorney General Barr at least start talking about enforcing the rule of law against these leftists. And you hear this leftist media, thats I'm calling it the Antifa media, which is justifying violence, supporting insurrection, pretending that Antifa isn't, quote, an organization. It's not organized. Either they're being, either they're lying or ignorant. I mean, we know directly that Antifa is real. 
We litigated against them. How do we, what, let me be clear. They sued us. Antifa sued Judicial Watch. We were asking for documents about one of their violent members in California. She worked as a school teacher. She had been arrested for violent acts. I think she'd been convicted. I'm not, I, don't, I don't recall, but it's pretty clear the rule of law was coming down on her for her violence. So we wanted emails about what she was doing on school time, school emails with, with this organized act of violence that she was involved in. So lawyers for her came in and sued us. The lawyers are an arm by any means necessary, which is an Antifa organization. So literally the group has lawyers that work for them directly. But instead, the president's being attacked for trying to suppress the insurrection in Lafayette Park, for highlighting the ability of the president of the United States under the Insurrection Act and the Constitution to uh, intervene where necessary to protect the safety of citizens. Uh, I pray the worst of this insurrection is past. But let me just say this, I think it's all part of the coup. It began during the Obama administration with the illegal spying and then a sedition after President Trump was elected by trying to prosecute illegally General Flynn, trying to put the president in jail. You had the Kavanaugh nominations which saw violence and intimidation trying to keep Kavanaugh off the Supreme Court. And then you had the impeachment coup attack, where you had the foreign policy establishment conspire against the president, leak information, misstate what we basically attack his ability to do his job as representative of the United States in foreign affairs, try to remove him from office for asking questions about the corruption of Joe Biden and the Obama gang that was targeting him in concert, in, in concert with Ukraine government at the time. I mean, they take the position that they should be able to decide the deep state does, who should be in office. And now their leftist allies are out there rioting, using violence to achieve political results. And you may say, well, they're not getting any results. Well, they are getting results. You see reports of police agencies changing policy. It's nothing to do with public safety, it's all politics. You have the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, who's a radical leftist, radical. It's been tied to Antifa directly. He came in and he's taken over the prosecution of the officers involved in George Flynn's death. Now you may recall there was an, an initial charge tied to third degree murder and manslaughter. So Ellison comes in and he changes the charges, adds additional charges or includes, uh, adds charges against the officers that were there with uh, Officer Chauvin. And increase the severity of the charge against Chauvin. Now you may say, well, that's good, right? Well, you know, it may not be good in the sense that the charge may not stick because Ellison made a political decision in a way that will result in Chauvin possibly not being convicted as a result. So if you want justice for, for Chuck Floyd, Mr. Floyd, excuse me, you may not get it with this radical running the prosecution. Now they're talking about eliminating the ability of the police to use chokeholds, to use um, restricting their use of force, and, and all sorts of other further restrictions. This is, by the way, as police are under assault and being murdered daily by these rioters. The problem is at the police. Yes, we had a police officer who the evidence shows engaged in excessive force, likely leading to the death of the person. And he's being charged. And to say police officers can't now use, for instance, a, a technique used to 
subdue suspects without the use of deadly force. You know what that means? It means, in my view, police officers will be, be forced more often to resort to deadly force to resolve situations that to be used by physically restraining someone. That's what's going to happen. And what's that mean? It means both police and suspects are more likely to be injured and killed. So under the guise of controlling the police, what they're doing is actually making the public less safe. Of course, now they've moved even beyond restraining the police. You see these leftists talk about defunding the police or banning police forces, ending police forces in their entirety. So when I talk about insurrection, you've got insurrection even within the system here. Destroying rule of law, just destroying. You know, I have a book coming out for Judicial Watch later this year. And the book is called Assault on Our Republic. Now, came up with the title before the riots, but isn't it apt? I fear for the future of our country. You see, the left has zero interest in following the rule of law. We have the mayor of our nation's capital battling with the president over his prerogatives as commander-in-chief to secure the district. The district, which, by the way, is run by the federal government under our Constitution. Yeah, they changed this, home, this law, home rule, which gave district residents the right to elect a city council, other local officials, and the mayor. But you can see that home rule is a farce and was an abdication of Congress's constitutional duty to run the district. And now you can see why a nation's capital shouldn't be subject to the whims of an official elected by the capital residents. An official has no accountability to the rest of America. It's America's city. It's a constitutional creation. No other city in the country is like it. It's not a state. Can't be a state. And if I were the president, I would look into removing the mayor. Under law, of course, but removing her. Federalize the police force, which is what he's, what he specifically has the legal authority to do under federal law. Federalize it. What do you think was going to happen if those protesters got into the White House? There's a, these Friday night riots. Supposedly the president was moved into his protective secure location in the White House. Do you think the Secret Service did that because they didn't think that he was at risk? If protesters overwhelmed forces around the White House during this insurrection, they would have killed the president if they got through. They would have killed him. So don't lecture me about protests that are, quote, mostly peaceful. Because the part that isn't peaceful could destroy our republic. And you see the major media coming down on the side of Antifa. You had Tom Cotton write a piece in the New York Times talking about the need to uh, enforce the Insurrection Act which is an old law that allows deployment of forces where appropriate to protect public safety, military forces. And then you have General Mattis attack the president of the United States. I'll tell you what, if I were the president, I'd fire the whole lot of them in the Pentagon, every general, every general. I just presume that Mattis is a stalking horse for every general over there in the Pentagon. The problem with the president is he's got to rely on the same group of agencies that were trying to illegally spy on and jail him to protect him and the nation from insurrection. Certainly Barr knows what's happening. Ray, I don't know what Ray's doing. As I said, the FBI, I don't trust to be able to do much of anything these days, even though we're may need them to do the work. They, they're not going to do anything on Antifa. 
and they barely could even those terrorist incidents where they come back after this we find out after the fact that the fbi had been warned six ways to sunday about the the terrorist or the the lone wolf so we're facing a crisis and i hope the worst of it has passed i think the president really um and i appreciate uh the D.C. National Guard, the South Carolina National Guard, the Utah National Guard, and whoever else has been sent up here to protect the city. Because we think that city was set, we saved the city because of it. The city was saved because of it. Our district, our national, our national capital. It could have been lost. It could have been lost. So they're going to use this as a crisis to continue to, to affect policy change, and they're going to try to use violence to affect the policy change. The left is. If you want to see the, the cynicism of it, I mean, we're told we can't breathe outside without a mask. We have to stay six feet away from everybody. You go to church, you're in danger of being arrested. You congregate here in the District of Columbia with more than 10 people, you're in danger of being arrested. But as soon as a protest arises, that the political left-wing class that is tyrannizing the population with needless, needless coronavirus shutdowns happens, all that's thrown out the window. I mean, you had the governor of Michigan, who's notorious for having her absurd shutdown policies challenged. She's out there hand in hand with protesters. Now, I think there's no health risk from that or negligible. People want to be able to protest and they should be able to protest within, within the law. So I, I'm, not, I'm not worried about the public health, but it shows you the lies that we've been told in terms of the alleged concern that these leftist governors and local mayors have had about coronavirus. What should be done? Home rule should be restricted or reformed here in the District of Columbia, so no future mayor, including this one, can ever get in the way of protecting the safety of our nation's capital from an internal insurrection. Local officials should focus on Antifa organization in their organ in their communities, infiltrate and and Antifa. Antifa. I mean, there, there's no organized terrorist activity or illegal activity that would, with any modicum of law enforcement resources, be allowed uh, uh, be able to function. I mean, just it, they just can't do it. I mean, as soon as the FBI focuses on it for real, as soon as local police focuses on it for real, Antifa's over. It's over. The fact that it's been able to prosper and grow and be as effective as it's been is a result of failures by law enforcement to use the tools available to them to easily protect and control. I mean, that's what's so frustrating about a lot of this is that we see these problems, but it doesn't take a lot of effort to solve them. I mean, just look at Judicial Watch, what we're able to do. We're a nonprofit entity, a 501c3. I got me, I got my colleagues, I got our investigators, I got our team of lawyers. We got about you know, 50, 60 people working in our company at Judicial Watch. All get money, voluntary contributions from maybe many of you watching hundreds of thousands of Americans. And look what we're able to do. We can hold government agencies to account. We can change history with Hillary Clinton. We can protect the president from being overthrown by pressuring and highlighting the corruption behind the effort, the coup effort against him. Just one group. We're not even a government group. We don't even get government money. The only government money we get is when we beat the government. They sometimes give us attorney fees. 
that we spend trillions of dollars to secure the public safety and look at what's going on. We have this left-wing group being allowed to metastasize and prosper within our nation's capital. So that needs to be addressed in a forthright manner. And the president should continue to assert his authority under the Constitution to protect the public safety. Like I said, I think the worst of it may have passed, but you know there could be major demonstrations again this weekend. We don't know. And the way Keith Ellison is handling that, that prosecution of the police officer, I'm not confident that's going to result in an outcome that isn't going to lead to more civil unrest, where you will have protests expressing outrage or concern about the outcome, which is fine. But with that, you'll have the Antifa and the left-wing radicals and others engage in insurrection to try to overthrow our government. That's what it's about. Antifa doesn't, you know, people say, Antifa, why, why are you doing this? You're, you know, people say, they don't support the First Amendment rights of others. They don't support justice for Mr. Floyd. They just don't support it. They see it as a vehicle to overturn our system. They're communist revolutionaries. They are communist revolutionaries. And media that give them aid and comfort should be called out on it. Politicians that give them aid and comfort should be called out on. And they should be investigated and jailed. Go as I said, it will go away, and then they'll be back again with the next out with the next uh, excuse. It's not Trump; they were around before Trump. They were around during Obama. Occupy Wall Street—that's Antifa. All these leftist politicians were bowing down to Occupy Wall Street. The left has always had an element of violence that it goes to to achieve its political ends. And the traditional conservative right, they don't. It doesn't mean there aren't so-called rightists who aren't violent or terrorists. You see some of these crazed uh, racists who are, 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 I think, unfairly, incorrectly deemed to be conservatives, that they conservative about it. So pray for America, everybody. Pray for America. And you can bet Judicial Watch will do what we can under the law to preserve the rule of law like, uh, as long as we're still able to. Like I said, the, 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 your capital was under attack. The heart of New York was under attack. Even small towns were under attack. by leftist radicals. So, well, speaking of the rule of law, there's no easy transition from talking about rioting. Uh, the uh, Judicial Watch, as you know, has been in a long battle with Hillary Clinton about her emails, trying to get justice from the State Department, and then Justice Department about our emails. Uh, we've had nothing but a, a fight with them on um, almost everything as they tried to protect them, protect her and themselves from accountability for the cover-up that they were complicit in. And a lower court judge, Judge Royce Lamberth, had authorized Judicial Watch to depose Hillary Clinton back in March. And what Hillary Clinton did, she and her top aide, Cheryl Mills, uh, she went and uh, filed what is called a writ of mandamus. It's just an emergency appeal, essentially, uh, that claims essentially that she has an indisputable right not to be test, not to be questioned under oath, indisputable, and that the court should be over her. The court did something un terribly unlawful in ordering her deposition testimony. 
the court saw that there was this misconduct by the State Department and and the Justice Department and wanted answers and wanted to know what she was thinking, who she was emailing, and information about her Benghazi documents and other Benghazi documents that was the case is about. It's the worst FOIA corruption scandal in since the law was written. I think it was signed into the law in 1967. So she filed this writ of mandamus, and it's before it was before three federal court judges at the appellate level, the DC Circuit level, and that hearing took place this week. Now, unlike many of our hearings, you're able to hear this one on the internet. So uh, I hope my colleagues will insert a link somewhere that you'll be able to follow and listen. So you can listen to the argument. And our uh, Judicial Watch attorney who uh, conducted the argument or presented for Judicial Watch was Ramona Kotka, who's been the key lawyer on, on, on this uh, email case, one of the key lawyers on this email case for some time for Judicial Watch really since the beginning. And uh, so this is the way it happens. Normally when you have hearings like this, you go in person. But because of uh, uh, coronavirus, uh, the hearing was teleconference. So you, that's why you're able to hear it online. So it was recorded so the public could hear it. So it could still be a public proceeding. So there are the three judges. Uh, David Kendall is the lawyer for Hillary Clinton. He represented Mrs. Clinton. She, he spoke for a bit, Cheryl Mills. Her lawyer is Beth Wickhamson, who happens to be a lawyer for Judge Sullivan. Huh, how you like that, Matt? She didn't argue, but she was uh, there, I think, at first. I don't, I'm not sure she was there in person, but uh, she was representing Cheryl Mills pro bono. She didn't argue that. So uh, the questioning went the way it was expected. Uh, the court was uh, wondering about whether or not this writ was appropriate for Hillary Clinton, who is a government official who hasn't been in government for, what, when she leave, 2012, 2013? Typically, uh, it's hard to get a government official in, who's still in government at a high level, in for deposition testimony about FOIAs. But in Hillary Clinton's case, she left government many years ago, and the case is about what she was specifically was doing personally. So the courts, uh, the, some of the judges sounded skeptical about her ability to use this process to avoid testimony. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, a few of the judges just really uh, questioned quite closely, I'll leave it at that, our lawyer Ramona Kotka, uh, raising all sorts of questions that I, I didn't think much had much to do with anything, uh, but you know, Ramona's got to answer the questions, and uh, these are the judges that are deciding the case. Um, and we'll see how it goes. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, we may win, we may lose. But I sure hope that Hillary Clinton, once again, doesn't get a special exception to the law. Because if we do lose, that will be what will happen. That will be what will have happened. So if the court's following the law, we'll win. If the court isn't following the law, in my view, we'll lose. So we'll see. Now, interestingly, the Justice Department was there. As I told you last week, the Justice Department didn't want to be there because the Justice Department, on behalf of the State Department, had opposed our asking for your testimony or our getting testimony or even any discovery. Anyone. They wanted to shut the whole thing down. But when we did get the testimony or the permission to depose her, and Hillary Clinton filed the writ of mandamus, they said, no, 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 that's not appropriate. So even they couldn't stomach Hillary Clinton doing this. But they didn't want to argue the case before the court. And the court said, no, you got to come up. I mean, that, isn't that tell you where we are? I mean, we can't even get the Justice Department to come in and argue against Hillary Clinton, even though they know she's legally wrong. And I've told the court in writing that she is. And so we have this top lawyer for the Justice Department on behalf of the State Department. And there's anything you should listen to in the audience. You should listen to the Justice Department's arguments because they come in and they say, our position has been, and I'm paraphrasing, we just want to get through these Clinton email FOIA cases. We just want to end them and keep it behind us. They just want to get through the cases. 
Not one would have concerned about the misconduct. Not one would have concerned about the accountability. Attorney General Barr, why on earth would you let your attorneys come into court and basically dismiss the concerns of tens of millions of Americans and your own Justice Department about the legal activity of Hillary Clinton? I don't understand. Secretary Pompeo, your State Department's taking that legal position as well. You know, but it goes to show you that Judicial Watch, you know, I'm not just here, you know, I'm obviously you're talking about stuff, but we're doing other things. I'm talking about activity. We're in court. We have probably about 100 lawsuits active now. We've filed probably nearly 1,000 by this point. Thousands of Freedom of Information Act cases in terms of requests. So we only sue for a portion of the ones that we file. So once again, it's Judicial Watch in court doing the heavy lifting to hold Hillary Clinton accountable to the rule of law. Because Congress doesn't want to do it, the State Department doesn't want to do it, and the Justice Department doesn't want to do it. And if you think they're going to do anything absent being pushed by groups like Judicial Watch, I mean, you know that's not going to happen. So in the meantime, we've gotten information. We were allowed to depose, uh, excuse me, get a subpoena from Google on Hillary Clinton's emails because it looks like one of her email vendors may have sent all of her emails to Google. And the court wanted us to shake this tree, shake that tree, he said. So we issued the subpoena to Google. We got a response and as Ramona disclosed in the testimony, I think we had hundreds of emails that we found or remnants of emails, it's not clear, in that Google account that hadn't been turned over. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I mean, her argument is what difference does it make? Our argument is, A, we have a right to the emails under the law. We have a right to try to figure them out. That's what the law requires within reason. As Judge Sullivan said about another case that he had with Hillary Clinton, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm going on, this is several years ago. He said, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the actions of one government official, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Statute of limitations hasn't run out on the Clinton email scandal. So I have a feeling that's one of the reasons they want to get this behind them because they don't want to have to do the, the, the hard work of prosecuting anyone about it. Have you heard, any, any, have you heard anyone in the Justice Department say anything about what Comey did with Hillary Clinton? Have they disavowed at least what he's done? What the prior Justice Department did in giving her a free pass. There's more than enough information to reopen the Clinton email investigation criminally in terms of prosecuting it. Instead, the Justice Department is in court saying they just want to get it behind them. They just want to get it behind them. Completely outrageous. So what else is going on? Ah, how could I forget? I was testifying before Congress the other day on behalf of Judicial Watch about protecting the right to vote during the coronavirus crisis. Now, of course, I don't think there's a coronavirus crisis anymore, so you can imagine what my attitude was. Uh, but the hearing was set up with the uh, subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee is Congressman uh, Nadler from New York. The subcommittee chairman is Congressman Cohen from Tennessee, both of them are Democrats. Uh, Congressman uh, uh, Jordan is the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee for the Republicans. And uh, I am forgetting, Lord help me, the name of the ranking member on the House Judiciary Committee. I'll probably figure it out. Uh, and um, the committee testament. So I was invited to testify. Our friend uh, Christian Adams was invited to testify. He's one of the only other groups. He runs one of the only other groups that involves itself in trying to clean up and secure elections. 
as opposed to try to undermine their security. And um, I think the minority staff, the majority staff, had five or six witnesses. So two witnesses on our side, five or six witnesses on the other. And of course, it's run by the Democrats. They won, so they run it. So I, I don't complain about that. And it was a, a it was a telework uh, or a, tel, uh, a teleconference, like a web a web Zoom type of hearing. Uh, which I don't like. There's no reason to have it. Congress should be meeting in person, not, not, there's no reason health-wise or otherwise. And frankly, it's suspicious constitutionally uh, when they uh, don't meet in person. Uh, but nevertheless, they held the committee hearing. And uh, my guess is they were not too pleased with the way it went. Because who was the lead and the star witness for the, for the leftists on the committee? It was Stacey Abrams who lost a seat for governor in uh, Georgia and has made a career since then of falsely accusing uh, Georgia of engaging in voter suppression in terms of stealing the election from her when in fact that did not take place at all. And now trying to upend our election system uh, by requiring vote by mail requirements and upending voter ID and security uh, for 2020 and beyond. And uh, I testified really quite strongly about what we should be doing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through what I testified about. Let's see here. One of the problems of doing this during the coronavirus is I don't have my paper. I have to rely on this old uh, thing I have. And I'm going to go through my testimony because you probably won't hear it anywhere else. Probably we'll go over and watch it. Uh, but I think it's important because we're facing a rule of law crisis. As I say, our Republicans under assault. I don't think elections aren't part of the target. I don't think they don't want to be able to set up this deal in 2020. I start off, for years, Americans have been losing faith in the integrity of our electoral process. Many polls have been taken on this subject and they reached the same conclusion the Gallup organization conducts a particularly interesting poll which compares American attitudes with those of other countries. The poll asks respondents if they have confidence in the honesty of elections. Last year, only 40% of Americans answered yes, while an astonishing 59% said no. Gallup reports that a majority of Americans have consistently lacked confidence in the honesty of elections. Every year since 2012. Among the explanations for this loss of faith, we must include the public's impatience with the politicization of election procedure, and in particular, the dubious objections to what are widely perceived to be common sense election integrity measures. The most obvious example, the most obvious example today concerns the fight against voter ID laws. The strong partisan, bipartisan support for voter ID laws, I think there were 76, 76 in favor in a major poll. The support is understandable in society where one must produce identification for so many different reasons, from getting on a plane, to buying prescription drugs, to working out on the, working out on the gym. But voter ID laws are so often opposed with significant success by political operatives, it's a sign of our times. The opposition often relies on unsupported claims that voter ID will depress minority turnout, but this effect is never seen in actual elections. Opponents also try to flip the burden of proof, arguing in effect that unless those favoring voter ID can prove that voter fraud is a common occurrence that costs elections, there is no justification for requiring an ID. This argument is bogus. As the Supreme Court has noted, Regardless of the prevalence of fraud, states have an obvious legitimate, quote, interest in conducting counting only the votes of eligible voters and in carefully identifying all voters participating in the election process. This interest is justified by the nature of voter fraud, which is hard to detect or punish after the fact. Think about it. It's hard to figure out if someone committed voter fraud. On a more practical note, those expressing doubt about the existence of voter fraud reveal an unrealistic, unrealistic, if touching, view of human nature. 
people cheat at more or less at everything. They cheat at baseball, they cheat at sumo wrestling. Yes, they do cheat at sumo wrestling. They cheat when it doesn't matter. For instance, in online gaming or internet chess. They even cheat at solitaire. Yeah, people cheat at solitaire. So there's, they're not competing against anybody other than a deck of cards. Why, why do they think voting is any less subject to cheating, especially given the intense partisan and financial feeling, enthusiasm, and interest? There are many, many examples of common sense election integrity laws that partisans have made the subject of unnecessary and manufactured opposition. And by I mean, when I say partisans, I mean leftists. By far the silliest example is a 2017 Virginia State bill that would have required electronic poll books to contain the photograph already taken by the Department of Motor Vehicles for each registered voter who has a driver's license. So that way they can check the ID. Note that the actual photograph of a voter taken by the DMV cannot possibly discriminate against that voter, yet then Governor McAuliffe vetoed the bill. And since then, you've had a new governor come in, by the way, Governor Northam, who has eviscerated the voter ID law in Virginia with the approval of the legislature. My point here is that the American people see what they conclude as disingenuous fights and lose faith in the honesty of our elections. Because when someone is obviously just trying to oppose something so that they're able to gain the system, why do you think the system isn't going to be rigged? With this background in mind, I turn to measures proposed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the most common suggestions now is to require greater reliance on mail-in ballots. For example, last month, Governor Newsom issued an executive order requiring that county election officials transmit mail ballots to every registered voter in the state. I view this as a real threat to the integrity of our elections. In 2005, excuse me, my point, uh, oh wait, in 2005, I, I, I lost my train of thought. In 2005, you had a bipartisan consensus against mail-in votes because they're known to be susceptible to fraud. You had Jimmy Carter and James Baker, who was then a big Republican. Jimmy Carter, of course, the former Democratic president. They had a commission that looked at this issue. This is what they concluded. Absentee ballots remain the largest source of potential voter fraud. Absentee balloting is vulnerable to abuse in certain ways, in several ways. Blank ballots mailed to the wrong address or to large residential buildings might get interrupted, intercepted. Citizens who vote at home at nursing homes at the workplace or in church are more susceptible to pressure, overt and subtle, or to intimidation. Hence the objections to ballot harvesting. Vote buying schemes are far more difficult to detect when citizens vote by mail. What does that mean? Vote buying schemes are harder to detect. People buying votes they're able to do it away from a polling place, it's a lot easier. While I share all these concerns, I'd like to focus on the problem of ballots mailed to the wrong address. Voter registration lists throughout the country and are routinely out of date, routinely out of date, containing registrations for voters who are no longer alive at the stated address, who have died, who are eligible under the law to vote for other or to vote for some other reason. So they're not eligible to vote. This has been a problem for years. A Pew Research Center report back during the Obama years noted that approximately, listen to this number, 2.75 million people have active registrations in more than one state. And you probably know some of those people. People who used to live in your house, who like your kids who've got grown up and moved away, you're still getting their registration material at your house, even though you know they're voting somewhere else. 24 million, one out of every eight active voter registrations in the United States are no longer valid or significantly inaccurate. 24 million. 1.8 million deceased individuals listed as active voters. Active voters. You know what that means? 
you got dead people voting. And things haven't gotten much better since this Pew Center, I suspect. Well, maybe they've gotten a little bit better because Judicial Watch has come to the rescue. In particular, counties throughout the county, excuse me, we know that about the problem, of, we know about the problem because Judicial Watch, as I said, has come to the rescue. Because we've been enforcing the National Voter Registration Act, which requires states to take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. As I said before, in 2019, we did an analysis states across counties across the country we looked at those counties that had people more people on the rolls than living there and eligible to vote meaning over 100 percent of the voting age population was registered and when you add up all those extra names you come to two and a half million names and that's just the tip of the iceberg about the number of bad names on the registration list national There's high numbers of inactive registrations that have not been canceled as the law requires. The registration becomes inactive when a registrant is sent and fails to respond to an address confirmation notice. And if that registrant does not vote or otherwise contact election officials for the next two general federal elections from two to four years, the registration is supposed to be canceled. It's not being done. And during that period of Hey, where are you? Your registration's called inactive, but you still can vote because you're still registered. So will the mail-in ballots go to inactive voters? That's the concern. And as I said, inactive voters just don't, you know, there's a major issue with the voter risk generally, but the inactive voters are kind of just sitting out there. It's really quite obvious. Crucial to note that inactive voters can still vote on election day. This does not even require the voter to use a provisional ballot. It means that there's no quote, that there's no challenge. You're on the list, you vote. The voter need only affirm his or her address, and in many states that can be done orally. No ID required. To be clear, the poll worker asks the worker, asks the voter if she or she he or she lives at the listed address, and the voter says yes. At that point. The voter can vote. Now consider our experience in Los Angeles County. I've gone over this before. We have a settlement with them. They are in the process of removing up to 1.6 million extra names from their roles. 1.6 million extra names from their roles. And the process won't be completed until 2022. So there will be names removed before then, but all of them at issue won't be handled until 2022, because I said there's this process in place. Now, Governor Newsom's executive order, which we're challenging in court, would have sent ballots to all of those names, dead people, people who moved away. We've sued to stop it. He since has changed his executive order to suggest he won't be mailing it to the inactive names, but it doesn't answer the issue about just sending ballots by the millions without permission from the legislature as the constitution requires and flooding the system at this late stage in our election process. They wanna break the system. That's what I'm convinced is happening here. You know, one of the main reasons the Congress, the, the Baker, the Carter Baker Commission identified absentee ballots as the largest source of potential voter fraud is simple. It poses fewer risks for a person filling out and mailing a fraudulent ballot. By contrast, the person attempting impersonation fraud at a polling site must at least appear to cast the vote and in consequence may be found out and detained. So there is a little bit of a risk of showing up to vote illegally, even if there is no voter ID requirement. Who knows? Just last week, a West Virginia postal worker was indicted for manipulating eight voters' absentee, eight voters absentee ballots. 2019, an Oakland County clerk outside Detroit was charged with illegally altering 193 absentee ballots. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, man was charged with helping 13 others falsely falsify absentee ballots ahead of the 2018 election. 
I can go on. And there was a Republican in North Carolina, I think he doing illegal ballot harvesting involving 1,200 votes, all of which were absentee. 2017, a Dallas County man was convicted after 700 mail-in ballots were witnessed and signed by a fictitious person. Yes, Virginia, voter fraud is real. At a final, you know, it's about five months till election day. The pandemic is on the wane. Insisting now that all mail ballot elections seems less likely, less of a response to a health crisis than a partisan application of the infamous words of Rahm Emanuel. Never allow a good crisis to go to waste. You know, Governor Newsom's order is, a, is a particularly cynical because he's pretending that there's a health crisis that requires this change in law. But he's not doing anything about ballot harvesting, which requires people to in person go and collect ballots. So if he was so concerned about people's health, he would change that. Now, I want to be clear. We had Stacey Abrams in the giving testimony. We had other members of Congress making the same point as well during the testimony. And I pushed back. This is what I pushed back on. I pushed back on the fear-mongering by people like Stacey Abrams, who go around and say, without challenge, people shouldn't have to choose dying over voting. It's that type of fear-mongering that suppresses the right to vote that suppresses voters from coming out and voting. That's the, that's the voter suppression. The left accuses us of suppressing the vote, that's garbage. We're just trying to make sure that votes are secure. That increases people's willingness to vote. But when you have leftists out there trying to scare people to death from voting, that's suppressive. I mean, you can see from the protests this week, if someone considers a civil right important, they will exercise it no matter what the risk. We were told that it was risky to do this during coronavirus. Yet you see Americans exercising their rights. Who in their right mind would get in the way of people peaceably, peaceably assembling? And you'll be able to vote in person. If you want your vote to be counted and you want it to be secure, you're going to go vote in person. Now, yes, mail-in ballots are available. Absentee ballots are available. The laws don't need to be changed. Yes, there are secure methods. They're trying to increase security for absentee ballots. But the best way to be sure that your vote is counted, you vote in person. Everything else is more susceptible to fraud and intimidation. And just plain incompetence getting in the way of your vote getting counted. There's no perfect way to vote, admittedly. The best way to vote is in person. So if anything, we should be frowning upon vote by mail and encouraging people to exercise the franchise in person. We should be increasing security at polling places. Increasing the sanctity of the vote by making voter ID a requirement nationally. I'm not saying pass a national law. I don't know if that can be done under the Constitution. I'm saying state by state. I mean, the left would have you believe everywhere in our country is, is being, you know, all these voters are being suppressed by voter ID. It's simply not true. 15 major states have no voter ID. And by major states, I mean states like California, Illinois, Pennsylvania, I think New Jersey, New York, places like that. Only 10 or 11 states have strict voter ID, meaning essentially if you don't have a voter ID or a photo ID or something substantial, you can't really vote. You might be able to submit a provisional ballot, but you got to show up pretty darn soon after the election with the proper ID. Most other states have what they call voter ID, but it's they're weak. That's just a variation of how weak they are. Some are better than others, but only 10 or 11 states have strict voter ID laws. So our, our, our elections are largely unsecured, are largely unsecured. So these were some of the points I was making during the testimony. And um, I don't think 
too many of the left like it. Uh, many people, uh, I don't think I've ever heard the point that uh, scaring people from voting in person, using uh, fake science and fake uh, concerns about coronavirus is suppressing the right to vote and will suppress voter turnout. Those are the people who need to be held account. So in the meantime, Judicial Watch will continue to do the heavy lifting. We have that case in California over Newsom's scheme to illegally mail votes, uh, ballots, I mean. Um, we're suing on behalf of voters and Congressman, or former Congressman Darrell Issa, he's trying to get back into office now. We have su suits in North Carolina and Pennsylvania to clean up about two million names between the two of those states. I don't know how they're gonna turn out. And a war is coming. More is coming. So uh, Judicial Watch, once again, uh, I was proud to represent you to Congress. And I appreciate the Democrats uh, allowing me to testify. I was obviously invited by the Republicans to come in. Uh, but uh, uh, Congressman Cohen, he ran a very fair hearing. And I encourage you to watch the hearing. Uh, and we we're all very respectful to each other. It was very civil. And uh, Congress, the leftists in Congress are trying to push this national vote by mail plan and uh, undo election security throughout the nation. Uh, they're unlikely to do it, but now it's a state by state battle. So I encourage you to track this issue because, you know, everything we're talking about in terms of taxes, the size of government, all, all policies that you hear about out of Washington, you know, that's all your concerns about it are be all for naught if they can steal elections, if your vote isn't counted. So it's a core issue, and it's part of the attack on the republic on our left is to underdo, un, undo our, uh, any, any semblance of the light security we have around a secure voting here in the United States of America. So uh, the interesting thing about what went on last week is as I'm testifying on the Hill, who's across the way? Not literally. But Rod Rosenstein, the former Deputy Attorney General in the Trump Justice Department, he testified with, finally before the Senate on Obamagate, Pfizergate, Mullergate, Spygate, Russiagate, Hillarygate, Flintgate, or any of the gates I'm forgetting about. It's all worse than Watergate. That's all I know. So Lindsey Graham finally got the message that they want accountability, the American people do, for what went on. So they brought Mr. Uh, Rosenstein in. And you know what I think is very interesting? Virtually every document that Rosenstein was asked questions about, Judicial Watch, had uncovered. We had already uncovered it. I mean, he's asked about the FISA warrants, who uncovered the FISA warrants, who got them out, Judicial Watch through litigation. He asked about, he was asked about emails that he had sent and emails that were sent about his coup discussions with uh, Andrew McCabe, Judicial Watch had disclosed those. He was asked about uh, uh, all sorts of other documents that uh, Judicial Watch had uncovered about uh, the FISA investigations, excuse me, the FISA gate abuses of President Trump and uh, Rosenstein's role in it, the appointment of Mueller, uh, and uh, how that all came about. Now, remember, Rod Rosenstein was acting attorney general for purposes of the Russia investigation. Sessions wrongly recused himself from that, and he, uh, 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 as a result, Rod Rosenstein became the chief. Comey got fired by Trump. Comey leaked documents illegally about Trump from Trump's FBI file, and Rod panicked with Andrew McCabe and appointed special counsel Rob Mueller. And we all know the rest of the story. You had these illicit FISA warrants being signed, one of which was signed by Rod Rosenstein. He says he didn't read the he didn't read the document, then he said he did read it, then he said he was relying on others to get it all right. It's the FBI's fault, it's Andrew McCabe's fault. No one really asked him about why it is Andrew, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, General Flynn was wrongly prosecuted. 
by Mueller if he was doing such serious oversight of what Mueller was doing. So it was kind of a pretty, pretty much of a light touch for uh, pretty much it was a, you know, there were no serious punches thrown at Rosenstein in terms of accountability. I mean, questioning is better. Some questioning is better than none. You know, it's interesting. We had all these documents that we have gotten about Rosenstein and about that issue. And, uh, you know, Senate didn't ask me about it. They didn't ask Judicial Watch, hey, what should we be asking Rod Rosenstein? No, they just did it on their own. So needless to say, he was able to skate on a lot of key issues, like the appointment of Mueller, the, uh, for instance, the electronic communication that opened up Crossfire Hurricane. If you look at that original document that Judicial Watch had uncovered, no, of course not. I mean, he was questioned on the fraud FISA warrants uncovered by Judicial Watch, the steel FBI payments uncovered by Judicial Watch. Remember, the FBI was paying steel. His emails, again, uncovered by Judicial Watch. Weissman's emails, Mueller's top deputy's emails, uncovered by Judicial Watch. And of course, the Mueller memos on, on Trump that we had got through litigation as well. But not, not much in the way of a serious investigation of, of the actual coup. And what do I mean by the coup? I mean a discussion between McCabe and Rosenstein about three topics in, right after Comey was fired. Wearing a wire on the president of the United States, invoking the 25th Amendment wrongly to remove Trump, and appointing a special counsel to really harass and hound him since there was no evidence of Russia collusion, as Mr. Rosenstein was uh, forced to admit repeatedly. And... Um, he, he denied the discussion about the 25th Amendment, or kind of semi-denied it, and I think blatantly denied it, or, or more explicitly denied the discussion about wearing a wire, but he wasn't cross-examined on it to any extent. In fact, the Democrat senator from Hawaii, Senator Inrow, was the one who asked the question. The Republicans didn't ask him the question. And they certainly didn't ask him about this document that Judicial Watch had obtained, from Andrew McCabe's record. McCabe wrote what is called a contemporaneous memorandum about his discussion with Rosenstein about the effort to overthrow Trump. Now, I, I'm characterizing it that way, and they would obviously characterize it differently, but I'm, I'm pretty confident in my characterization. So what Rosenstein, this is what McCabe wrote about what Rosenstein suggested. As our conversation continued, the dad, Rosenstein, proposed that he could potentially wear a recording device into the Oval Office to collect additional evidence on the president's true intentions. He said this, he thought this might be possible because he was not searched when he entered the White House. I told him that I would discuss the opportunity with my investigative team and get back to him. We discussed the issue of appointing a special counsel to oversee the FBI's Russia investigation. The DAG said he had two candidates ready, one of whom could start immediately. Now, Judicial Watch's other emails show that he was secretly talking to Mueller and keeping it away from his boss, who he described yesterday as being Sessions, not Trump. Either way, it was inappropriate in my view. But you heard what McCabe said. Now, McCabe is not honest Andy, that's for sure. But this document sounds pretty darn persuasive to me, a contemporaneous document. Other testimony suggests the discussions took place by other people who don't really have a dog in the fight. They're talking about wearing a wire and spying on the president. You're talking about invoking the 25th Amendment. What's the 25th Amendment again? It's designed to provide for a transition of power when a president becomes infirm or incapable of performing his duties. It's not designed to remove a president because you don't like that he fired someone. You don't like how he exercised his core constitutional authority to fire a member of the executive branch. And then, of course, they had the discussions about Mueller. This is the coup. And Rosenstein was involved in it. I appreciate he testified to the Senate. I see there's going to be more subpoenas to more witnesses, many of whom the Judicial Watch has exposed to the American people for their involvement in the targeting of Trump. 
Senator Johnson's committee, it looks like he's going to get on that. But Rosenstein should be testifying to a grand jury. I'll leave it up to you to think, so to conclude whether it should be a target or not, but at least he's a witness. And he says he didn't know anything. McCabe says he knew everything. He was telling the truth. So I said the seditious conspiracy. Tell you what, too many people in the FBI and the Justice Department were no better than the Antifa people trying to tear down the White House the other day. That's my view. So I don't know how I can top that statement. So with that, thank you for your support. You can see that Judicial Watch is doing more than Congress, more than the media, more than the Justice Department to enforce the rule of law. And we do it with your support. If you're not already supporting us, you should. You can go online to judicialwatch.org. You can support us with a few easy clicks on Facebook and everywhere else. And I encourage you to look at the documents that we've uncovered that Congress is now, after two years following up on, they literally are taking two years to follow up on our disclosures. Two years. And the only reason they're doing it, because Judicial Watch, because of you. I told the Washington Post, it's quite, they actually quoted me accurately and treated us fairly. There is public pressure on the system to get accountability. I told the Post, I said, the number one question I get is why has anyone go to jail? Why has anyone done anything? Certainly the Senate has done anything. The American people have seen what goes on, it's gone on, and they want accountability. And the Republicans are finally figuring that out probably because it's an election year, but you know, that's the way the system works. That's why we have elections, so that the people in the power do what we wanted to do for fear of being turned out. <laughs> I'm one of the few in Washington who doesn't mind a little pandering now and again, because otherwise we'd never have them do anything right. So thank you for your support. You can see that we're accomplishing so much with it. And uh, I'll keep you updated when we hear back from Hillary Clinton, uh, excuse me, from the court on Hillary Clinton, how the case goes in California on cleaning up the, uh, on, on stopping the scheme to blow up the election by uh, sending out millions of ballots, people who haven't asked for them. Uh, so there's so much going on and I have a lot more coming down the pipe uh, next week and in future weeks, obviously here on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.